Part Two, Chapter Four of Israel's Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Israel's Faith by Nathan Solomon Joseph. Chapter Four Sacrifice and Prayer. When the world was young, men did very much the same as little children do, who bring sweetmeats to their parents, thinking that what they themselves like best must be acceptable to their parents. Cain and Abel brought to God offerings, Cain from the fruit which he had tended, Abel from the firstlings of his flocks. Soon afterward, in the time of Seth, we find that man began to call on the name of the Lord. This means that man gave expression to their gratitude in the language of prayer and praise. And thus, both sacrifice and prayer existed very early in the history of the world. These were the first religious observances. But we have seen how, in course of time, the people became idolaters, and how they at last came to sacrifice men and women, and even their own little children, in the strange belief that if they sacrificed that which was dearest to themselves, it would be pleasing to their gods. So one of the first things that God had to teach the children of Israel was to give up the terrible practices of idolatry, to stop sacrifices altogether, and all at once would not have been advisable, perhaps hardly possible, for the desire to give something to God could not be checked. That desire had to be made harmless and even useful and to this end was instituted the system of sacrifices that we find in the Mosaic Code. In the first laws which God gave the Israelites after the Ten Commandments, he forbade their making gods of silver and gold, but explained to them how they might bring sacrifices. Ye shall not make unto me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth shalt thou make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. The Israelites were not to sacrifice human beings. They might bring as offerings beasts or birds, but these were to be clean animals without blemish. Even then, the offerings had to be made in certain fixed and particular ways. Those who brought the sacrifice were not permitted to offer it themselves. It had to be offered by a priest, one of the descendants of Aaron, who were all considered holy servants of God. Any animal required for food by the Israelites during their abode in the wilderness had to be taken to the priest, slaughtered by him, and the blood and fat offered as a sacrifice. 
All this was to show how sacred a thing is life. It was to show that even the life of a brute was not to be taken lightly or wantonly, and thus the people would be led to think that if the life of a beast be thus regarded, how sacred must be the life of a human being. A large portion of the book of Leviticus is filled with particulars of the various sacrifices and the manner in which they were to be offered. We read about burnt offerings, meat offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, and offerings of consecration. There were daily offerings, offerings on the Sabbath, the festivals, and the Day of Atonement. The object of all this was to compel a fixed form of sacrifice so that the Israelites might never imitate the wicked idolatries and human sacrifices which they had been accustomed to see in Egypt. These forms of sacrifice, described in the Bible, were sufficient to satisfy all religious feelings and cravings and wants. The work of constructing the tabernacle for the service of God is very minutely described in the Bible. God gives every particular and detail of how it is to be made and how furnished. And so it is prepared and fitted under the very eyes of the people without mystery or concealment. Unlike the religious systems of other nations, in which the priests made a mystery of everything, lest the people should see the deceptions they practiced. Everything in the tabernacle was so made that the worship therein was to be open and public to the whole assembly of Israelites. The priest was to be seen when he went into the sanctuary and when he came out. The priest was one of themselves, one of the kingdom of priests. He was to minister to God, not as a mediator between God and his people, but solely as a servant of God, performing the service of God according to fixed rules and ordinances. It will probably appear very strange to you that God should accept the blood of an animal as an atonement for man's sins. And it certainly would be very curious if it were true, but it is not true. Nothing could be more ridiculous than the idea that a man who had committed some terrible sin should receive the forgiveness of God by simply bringing to a priest an animal to be slaughtered, and there is nothing in the Bible to warrant so absurd an idea. Read carefully the fifth and sixth chapters of Leviticus, if you wish to understand the spirit and meaning of sacrifices. You will find that if a man committed a sin against God, he had first to make a confession of his sin and afterward to bring, as an offering, a lamb or a kid. And if he could not afford a lamb or a kid, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
and in case he could not afford these little birds, a tenth part of a measure of fine flour could be offered, and the priest burned on the altar a handful of the flour. In the last case, the sacrifice of the flour, there was no life taken, so there was evidently no sacrifice of blood. And thus you see the taking of life and the sacrifice of blood were not essential to the atonement. The really important part of the proceeding was the confession of the sin and the open declaration of the sinner's penitence. Reading a little further, you will find that if a man sinned against his neighbor by dealing falsely with him, or by robbing him, or by deceiving him, or by detaining lost property that he had found, or by swearing to a neighbor's injury, then he had to bring as a sin offering a ram without blemish. But before bringing it, he had to make good to the neighbor he had injured all that he had wronged him of, and to give him, in addition, one-fifth part of the value. In this case, it is clear that the really important part of the transaction was not the offering, but the making good the injury. If we wish further to see how small a value God placed upon sacrifices compared with the spirit in which the sacrifice was brought, we have only to refer to the prophets and sacred writings. Samuel tells Saul, who, contrary to God's orders, had saved alive the sheep and oxen of the Amalekites to sacrifice to the Lord at Gilgal, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. Isaiah exclaims, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. God proclaims through his prophet Jeremiah that the aim of the law was obedience and not sacrifice. The prophet Micah asks, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God? We read in the fiftieth psalm, I will take no bullock out of thy house, 
nor he-goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. King Solomon, too, in the twenty-first chapter of Proverbs, declares, To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Thus we find that the performance of other duties, such as obedience to God, was considered of greater importance than the bringing of sacrifice. We learn from the prophets that, though we have at present no sacrifices and no priests, there are other means to make ourselves acceptable to God, by penitence, prayer, and praise, by acting justly, mercifully, and charitably. The act of prayer and praise was one of the first observances in the history of mankind. It is, therefore, proper to say a word concerning prayer in this place. What is the good of prayer? Can we expect that the praises we offer to God are pleasant for Him to hear? Can we hope that He who made all the world listens to our puny voices and feeble words? It seems at first hardly possible, but we know that it is not only possible, but certain. For God himself commands us to pray to him and to praise him. He tells us, When thou hast eaten and art satisfied, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Deuteronomy 12, 10 And so in our prayer and our praise, we are to look to God as the source of all blessing, to acknowledge him as the great power who supports, rules, and sustains us. This acknowledgment is the great principle of every religion. When, therefore, the great men of Israel ordained that we should worship God three times a day, and that we should offer thanks to him before and after every meal, and utter a blessing on every suitable occasion, their object was a wise one. They intended that, in every act of our lives, we should acknowledge the greatness, goodness, and providence of God, so that the thought that he is always and everywhere at hand should keep us from sinning, and cause us to lead a good and a virtuous life. But even if the law of God had been silent on the subject of prayer, the dictates of our hearts would prompt us to utter words of praise, for gratitude is the natural impulse of man. If you have a favorite dog whom you feed and carefully tend, 
he will lick your hand and dance around you in delight and show you his gratitude in many ways. If you have a little bird to whom you daily give his dole of grain and drink, he will warble out his note of thanks every time he sees you. How, then, can man, who alone has the gift of words, forbear to bring the homage of his heart and the offering of his lips to the Creator, who made him and sustains him? That we should pray to God is a law of God, but also a law of nature, which every man, woman, and child gladly obeys. Perhaps God is pleased with our songs of praise, just as you are pleased to hear the warblings of the little bird for which you care. Through prayer our hearts become elevated, our moral tone improved, and our impulses strengthened for the performance of good and noble deeds. King David, who taught all the world the language of prayer and praise, tells us, It is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is comely. And, lest we should think that the great Creator of the universe would not hearken to our prayers, he tells us, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. There are many who say that we cannot hope to alter the preordained design and intention of God by our feeble prayers, but the same objection might be raised against all human exertion. Shall we then cease to be industrious or ambitious simply because we cannot see the effect of our efforts at once? Prayer may be one of the means ordained by God to produce the legitimate ends we long for. God delights in granting such of our prayers as are worthy prayers as a kind father delights in granting the reasonable wishes of his children. Certainly this is the case with all prayers which we sincerely offer for our own moral improvement. It may seem rather strange that the law of Moses, which tells us so many things, does not tell us what prayers we should say. It gives us full particulars of the sacrifices, but ordains very few forms of prayer. In the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy may be read a special prayer to be said if a man be found slain, and his murderer cannot be discovered. And in the 26th chapter of the same book, there are prayers which were to be said on bringing the first fruits and on offering the tithes, but these are rather confessions than prayers. Besides these, there are really no forms of prayer specially ordained in the law of Moses. Why was this? Because prayers were to be the natural outpouring of the heart. 
in later times forms of prayer were composed for common use and certain psalms were sung in the temple by the levites later still when the jews returned from the captivity ezra aided by the prophets and scribes of his time prescribed the order of service consisting principally of the prayers and psalms then in common use and these are to be found in our prayer book together with very many others of much later date all in hebrew except a few which having been composed in babylon during the dispersion were written in the aramaic or chaldee dialect then the mother tongue of the exiled jews one may readily understand why our prayer book should be in hebrew it is not only our own language but the language in which god spake to our forefathers and it is the language which is still used by millions of our brethren in many countries and though these prayers are only forms of prayer there is much in the reflection that they are the same that have been used by our people in their synagogues and their homes during many generations and that they have served during so many ages to bring pious and holy thoughts into the minds and hearts of millions of our forefathers and to comfort them in their sorrows but all these prayers are of no avail unless in praying we add to these set forms composed by other people prayers of your own which need not be in hebrew and need not even be in words i mean loving thoughts of god grateful thoughts for all his kindness towards you hopes that he will guide us and give us strength to do our duty and resist temptation and help us to improve day by day and so enable us small and humble though we be to work his will on earth and earn a place in the life to come end of part two chapter four